0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. You can find that on page 198 in the Red Pew Bible. And this is a moment we've been working for towards, it's covered about two years. So this is, this morning we're going to be wrapping up our time in the book of Joshua. So it's not every Sunday we get to put a book to bed. I'm not saying I'll never come back to Joshua. Uh, But um, my goal is to preach through all 66 books of the Bible, and then whenever we hit that point, we'll start back in the Gospel of Mark. So I'll let you know, it'll be a while, it'll be a while before we come back to Joshua like this. Uh, This morning, we're going to be picking back up in Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 16 and then reading to the end of the chapter, verse 33. Uh, As we are looking at that, I just want to say I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Uh, I know we had a wonderful day. Uh, Growing up, though, you know, when I was a kid, I always felt like the saddest day of the year had to be the day after Christmas. Because when that clock, when when the midnight clock strikes, you are the furthest you will be from (laughs) Christmas Day. And it always bothered me because I thought there's a full 365 days before we get to experience the magic of Christmas Day again. And you kind of want, there's all sorts of movies and stuff where people, you know, they go back on, they want... Half Christmas Day on repeat, um, but here we are. We're stuck in that awkward time between Christmas and New Year's Day, and some of us wonder, well, what do we do now? Um, maybe it's and I, as I've been thinking about that, I'm a little older and a little wiser than I was when I was a kid. Now, um, I think it's actually kind of fun that it's not every year that we get to come and worship as a church the day after Christmas, the day after we've been considering all these wonderful things, the truth and the glory of the incarnation of Christ. So I think we're actually in a good position. And even though the week between Christmas and New Year's is always a little awkward, I think starting here today, it gives us a chance to contemplate what we anticipate coming out of this next year. So a lot of us, as 2021 winds down, are coming out, are excited, we're looking forward to a new year, looking forward to the new, a new start with new opportunities, maybe even hungry for another year. Uh, maybe you're planning to use this week between now and the start of 2022 to come up with some new personal goals. Maybe you're planning on making a New Year's resolution. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have things in our life that we'd like to change. And there is something about the start of a new year that just gets people in the mood to do that. The problem we all know about New Year's resolutions is that they just have this tendency to crash and burn. And we, we mean well when we commit to them, but sometimes we underestimate how much work that commitment turns out to be. Uh, we don't know the sort of challenges that we're going to face in the New Year, and sometimes keeping our resolution turns out to be more than we bargained for. Sometimes we may just conveniently forget that we made that resolution. Now, I don't want to downplay a New Year's resolution as a bad thing. I think that they can be good and helpful. But I think we'll all agree that keeping a resolution like that takes more than just having good intentions or wishful thinking. We need more than just to mean well. Seeing lasting change comes about in our lives uh, when, we, when we really commit to it. This morning, we're picking up back with the third and final meeting that Joshua had with the people of Israel. Joshua called this meeting uh, with the, the nation for a very important purpose. If the people wanted to continue living in the land of Canaan, the land which God had, had promised to their fathers and brought them to, then they had to live in obedience to God's commands. Joshua assembled the people of Israel at Shechem to call them to live the right way in response to the way that God had fulfilled all of his promises to them, which really is the driving theme of our time in this book, starting all the way back in chapter 22. In order to accomplish this purpose, we saw last week how Joshua had spoken the word of the Lord to them, how he had recounted uh, for them how God had brought them to that place, how he had overcome every obstacle for them, how he had defended them from their enemies, and how he had given them the land and everything in it. Then we saw how Joshua called the people to make a decision to choose whom they would serve, the Lord, the true living God who had fulfilled everything that he said he would do or the false gods of their fathers, or the false gods of the Canaanites. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at how the people responded to Joshua's ultimatum. And honestly, as we read this, this, there's a lot in this passage to be delighted about. Because we see a people here who are resolved in this moment to fear the Lord, to serve Him with all sincerity and faithfulness, to abandon hope in any other God, and to trust Him wholly. Israel it really is a great example to us in this passage of how to rightly respond and relate to God. Even so, just as New Year's resolutions often end up exposing our weaknesses, so also this passage gives us a bit of a reality check about our ability to carry those resolutions out, how we are in need of God's power and grace to work in us. So I think it stands that Joshua 24 ends up confronting us with our need for our salvation, our need for grace, and our need for transformation, which has only now been achieved through the work of Jesus Christ for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so as we explore this passage, that's what I want to bring to your attention this morning. So first, if you would, please stand with me as we read uh, from God's Word. This is the word of the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples and the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man, to his inheritance. After these things Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of of money. It became an inheritance to to the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, who had been given him, which, which had been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, the book of Joshua I have indicated to you from the beginning, when we first started this series, is about God's faithfulness to keep his promises. It's important to remember that because the book of Joshua is more than a history book. It has a point. God is faithful to keep his word. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, this faithfulness demands a response from us. That's what we've been looking at over the past few weeks as we've, as we've been asking the question, well, how do we live in a right response to the way that God has kept his word? Well, the main idea of our passage this morning and the instruction it gives us about how to live in a right response to God's work to keep his word is that we live relying on God's grace to deliver us. We respond to God's work by relying on God's grace. If we look at the overall structure of this passage, I think you'll see that it divides up really into four distinct parts. First, in verses 16 through 18, we have Israel's resolution, their resolution. Second, we ha- in verses 19 through 28, we have Joshua's reality check. Joshua gives the people a reality check. Third, in verses 25 through 28, we have the cutting of a covenant. The cutting of a covenant. And fourth, in verses 29 through 33, we have a conclusion involving three dead bodies. So, this is, that's the structure of our passage here. Together, these verses teach us why we can only respond rightly to the fulfillment of God's promises when we live relying on His grace, to see us through, and I want to show you that that is the case uh, by walking you through three points that we get from the text. First, I want to show you what Joshua shows the people of Israel, which is simply this, that good intentions are not good enough. Good intentions are not good enough. Second, we want to look at God's solution for human weakness. God's solution for human weakness. And then finally, I want to demonstrate to you that we get this grace through faith. We get grace through faith. Well, the first point that our passage aims to teach us is that good intentions simply are not good enough when it comes to responding rightly to a holy God. When we left off last week, Joshua had put a decision before the people choose whom you will serve. Will you fear the Lord? Will you serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness? Or will you choose to return to the ways of your fathers? Or will you turn to the gods of the Amorites who formerly possessed this land? We get the answer of the people starting in verse 16. And as we read that, I hope that you've smiled because there's, this is to, to my delight as we, as we see Israel respond to Joshua's question. We see that they choose to serve the Lord. They say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. They end by saying, we will serve the Lord, Joshua, with you, for he is our God. Wow, there is so much to love about this answer. In it, the people of Israel make a number of important statements. Uh, first, they identify themselves by their relationship with God as his covenant people. Notice how they call God by his covenant name, the Lord, and how they say he is our God. So their identity as a people was set apart first and foremost by their relationship With the Lord. Second, Israel confesses that God had indeed done everything that Joshua had spoken to them in verses 2 through 13. So the physical evidence which demonstrated God's faithfulness to them was certifiably true. Joshua had recounted a little bit more detailed version of what they say here. Um, And so as Israel responds to Joshua, we see them actually confirming that God had done all the things that Joshua had spoken of. So in doing so, they're actually confessing the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of his work to keep his promises. They're saying, yes, God is trustworthy. The third thing that Israel says in this statement is they indicate it would be madness for them to forsake God in favor of anyone or anything else. Far be it from us, they say, that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. So whether we're talking about the gods of Abraham uh, that he served before God called him to himself, or whether we're talking about the gods uh, that that Israel would have been exposed to in Egypt, or we're talking about the gods of the Amorites, none of those other deities were worthy of Israel's worship. It was the Lord who had delivered them, who had brought them out of their slavery, who had saved them from the sword of their enemies and blessed them with everything they were now enjoying in this land. Israel's recognizing it would be madness for us to leave this God who has called us out, who has collected us, who has blessed us for false gods like the nations serve. The fourth thing that we see that they say in this this statement is we see that they resolve to serve the Lord alone. The people of Israel knew and understood that there was only one God in all the earth. This God had shown his steadfast love and faithfulness to them in the way that he had called them, collected them, and blessed them. So when Joshua puts this decision to Israel to choose whom they will serve, they tell him, that they too will serve the Lord, for he was their God. Now in this last statement, Israel was committing to live a certain way in response to the reality of who God is, because of everything that he had done for them. They were saying that they were going to follow Joshua's example, that they were going to keep God's commands, and that they were going to walk with God and submit to him as their king. They were saying that they were choosing the first option that Joshua had laid before them, to fear the Lord and to serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. Now, given the rest of what we know about the nation of Israel up to this point in history, honestly, I've got to say, it's really refreshing and exciting to hear them answering Joshua like this. This is the sort of decision that is pleasing in the sight of God. If we fast forward to John chapter 4 verse 23, we hear Jesus telling the Samaritan woman at the well, The hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. As Israel makes this commitment together before Joshua at Shechem, they aren't saying that they'll just keep some list of rules, like a bunch of tenants who, are, who agree to abide by a landlord's code of conduct. No, they're saying that they're there to commit to God, to love Him, to serve Him, to revere Him as His people, the way that He deserves to be. They're saying that we will be faithful to him as he has proven himself faithful to us. Now, this is a beautiful moment for Israel. Like when a groom and a bride stand before a crowd of witnesses and make vows together, make promises together. It's, it's a, and the beauty of this moment is really makes verse 19 and Joshua's response terribly unsettling we see that Joshua looks at the people and says, you can't do it. Imagine someone at a wedding after the groom and the bride had made these lovely vows to each other to love each other in sickness and in health till death they part. And someone from the crowd stands up and says, or maybe the pastor stands up and says, you can't do it. (laughs) Yeah, talk about a hush over the crowd. This kind of upsets the mood. Joshua goes on, he says, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and and do harm to you and consume you after doing you good. That is terribly unsettling. Now, I really think that the people of Israel told Joshua when they told him, we also will serve the Lord, that they really meant from the bottom of their heart what they said. I really think that they intended to do this. But serving the Lord in the way that he is meant to be served is not a light thing to do. Serving the Lord involves the whole of our being. It involves exclusive allegiance to him. It it takes more than good intentions and pretty words. It takes perfect holiness. So before the people resolve themselves to forsake all other hopes to serve the Lord, Joshua wants to make sure they understand the reality of the situation. I think Joshua had to have known that the people meant well when they gave him this answer. I can't imagine him responding well if they'd said, you know what? I think we will serve the gods of the Amorites. But I think Joshua says what he does here. Because he knew the reality of the human heart. He knew what God had said to Moses about Israel on Mount Sinai. That they were a stiff-necked people, which means they're obstinate. He was there at Kadesh Barnea when the people refused to go into the land of Canaan because they were too afraid of the people who lived there. He had watched an entire generation of people die in the wilderness as a result. He knew sin. And the pervasive effects of sin. Not only because he would witnessed it in, the, in other people's lives, but because he himself was a sinner. So when Joshua says to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, we shouldn't think that he's being pretentious or pessimistic but rather that he is simply stating the reality of the human condition ever since Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden. And he's warning the people that while what they're saying is a good thing, that this is going to take more than words, and that falling short of this would have grave consequences for the nation. Now, it might seem a little unfair to us that Joshua would tell the people to serve the Lord, and that when they say, we will do it to come back with him at this harsh reality and say, well, you can't. Why would he do something like this? What, what is he getting at here? Well, I think Joshua says this because he wanted Israel, and by extension, he wants us to have an accurate understanding of the holiness of God and how far our best efforts fall of his glory. He's reminding us, as the Apostle Paul explains to us in Romans 3.23, that without exception we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. You can see that in the explanation he gives to the people for why they can't do what they want to do. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord for or because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve the foreign gods, then he will, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done good to you. So in this explanation, Joshua gives us two reasons why our good intentions are not good enough when it comes to serving the Lord. First, we overestimate ourselves. First, the first reason why I think we so often fall short, why our resolutions fall short Is because we overestimate ourselves. You are not able to serve the Lord, Joshua says. You have the desire, but you lack the strength. Why? Because our efforts, as good as they may be in our own eyes, fall short of the glory of God. They do that because they are carried out from sin-infected hearts. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Apart from the work of Christ to make us free, we are all subject to the desires of our flesh and the sin of our heart. And so while we may vow to do good, and while we may do some objectively good things, we are not in and of ourselves able to measure up to the goodness and the standards of God's holiness that brings us to consider the second reason why our good intentions fall short when it comes to serving the Lord, and that is because we underestimate God's glory. We underestimate God's glory. Notice that the reason Joshua says the people are not able to serve the Lord is twofold. Joshua says that the Lord is a holy God, which means that God is set apart from his creation. God's holiness is represents his beauty, his self-sufficiency, his eternity, his goodness, his love, and his perfection. When we think about holiness and we think about glory, we see that glory, God's glory, is the manifest expression of his holiness. So we read in Isaiah 6 verse 3 how the seraphim fly and how they call to one another in the presence of God, holy, 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 which is How Hebrew, that's in Hebrew, that is the way that you maximize something. Could not be higher, could not be more glorious. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God is his holiness. The second reason that Joshua says uh, is the second reason that we see that Joshua says that we're not able to measure up is because Joshua says that God is jealous. Now, people tend to struggle with the idea of God being a jealous God. I remember hearing a quote from Oprah Winfrey once about how she heard a pastor preaching on God's jealousy and decided she wanted nothing to do with such a God. We tend to recoil from words like jealousy, Jealous, to say God is jealous just makes your stomach twist a little bit. It doesn't seem quite right sometimes. Jealousy just doesn't seem like a virtue to us. Because when we think of a jealous person, we think of a person, we either think of a person who really wants something that someone else has, or we think about someone who is controlled by their emotions and is selfish. Neither one of those ideas are accurate descriptions of God's jealousy. When Joshua says that God is a jealous God, he is speaking about God's zeal for his glory. A zeal that flows from the excellence of who he is. There is nothing and there is no one higher than God. Therefore, God must be rightly zealous for his glory. Otherwise, he would be falling to something less. God has a zeal for true righteousness. He is worthy of our worship, our love, and our service. He made us. He sustains us. He keeps us in his steadfast love. And he does all of that without ever violating his righteousness. God has a right zeal for the glory of his name. And it's actually a good thing for you and for me that God is a jealous God. Because it means that whenever he acts, he never violates the standards of his holiness. That he always does what is best. And that he always upholds his perfect purposes. So while it often is the case when someone is, when a, creation, a, cre- a creature is jealous about something, that it's wrong, It is not the case for God when we say that he is a jealous God. As we hear this, we need to hear Joshua's warning about trusting our own ability or about um, our good intentions, thinking that our good intentions somehow are going to measure up to God's holiness. I think that the part of the reason that he said this to, to Israel, that they couldn't do what they were saying they could do, I think part of it was he was trying to challenge their resolve. And you have to kind of smile a bit to yourself because the people start arguing with Joshua. No, we will serve the Lord. And while we see in verse 31 that they did that as long as Joshua was alive and as long as the elders who outlived him were alive, we know from the book of Judges that this resolve did not last more than a generation. So Joshua's words were true. They were prophetic. And I think they expose how deep sin's grip on the human heart goes. How high God's holiness is, and why our good intentions simply aren't good enough. We need something else. And that's what we want to look at now in verses 22 through 28, which brings us to our second point this morning. God's gracious solution for human weakness. Israel told Joshua they were resolved to serve the Lord as his people. And so in verse 22, we see that he called them as witnesses against themselves, meaning that if they didn't live up to the commitment they were making, they were going to be convicted by their own testimony. And they agree to do this. In verses 23 through 24, we see that Joshua gives the people a set of instructions for what life is going to look like if they're resolved to do this. He says, He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel, to which the people respond, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Joshua called Israel to forsake all other hopes and all other gods and to incline their hearts to the Lord. We can see once again, Deuteronomy 6 coming out here, which Jesus calls the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength it's hard for me to believe that some of these people could have had idols or be serving other gods already as they had gathered here at Shechem. Uh, that's certainly not impossible, but if they were in fact harboring idols in their homes or serving the, the Baals already, um, <clears throat> we see that they're putting that away now. But I think Joshua's actually reaching into something a little deeper when he says to forsake those other gods and to serve the Lord, to incline their hearts to the Lord. What I really think he's saying here when he he tells them to put away these foreign gods that were among them, is that he's calling them to abandon all other hopes and to worship and serve the Lord exclusively. He's not just calling them to purge their homes of idols, but also to purge their hearts, so that they might serve the Lord with a whole heart, And we see in verse 24 that the people eagerly commit themselves to doing just that. They identify the Lord as their God, and they commit themselves to serving Him and obeying His voice. Now, As I read Israel's commitment to serve the Lord, there is part of my heart that just jumps with excitement to hear the way the nation is speaking. Uh, At the same time, I know, because of my position in history, that Joshua's foreboding words are going to come true. And that Israel was going to fall short of this. And so as Joshua makes this covenant with the people in verse 25 putting in place the statutes and the rules for them at Shechem, writing these words in the book of the law of God, taking this large stone and setting it up under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And as he tells the people that this stone, which had heard the words of the Lord, that he had spoken to them, was going to be a witness against them if they dealt falsely with God and went back on what they were saying so they would suffer these consequences, my heart still rejoices at what we're witnessing. There's also a little bit of pain there because I know their commitment is not going to be enough. But the feature that brings me back, the feature that returns me back to joy is the fact that even though Joshua told the people that they could not do what they said they were resolved to do because of the weakness of their hearts, he still makes this covenant with them. He committed himself to them, with them, to serve the Lord alongside them. Why would Joshua be willing to do that? Because while Joshua knew the weakness of good intentions, he also knew that God had a solution, a solution of grace that magnifies his glory, honor, and praise. As a young man, the Puritan pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards sat down and wrote a list of resolutions by which he committed to live his life. Now, by the end of his life, that list had grown to 70 resolutions which he was resolved to read through once a week and they included statements like resolved that i will do whatsoever i think to be most to the glory to god's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, uh, so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Now, if you get a chance to read Edwards' uh, resolutions, and you can get past the old regal language you'll see that Edwards committed himself to some noble things. And while that list is impressive, it's on posters in various seminary dorms. Um, While it is impressive, while it's convicting, while it is motivating, really it's the way that Edwards begins that list that strikes me the most. Because he starts his list of resolutions with this statement. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. A solution, Edwards knew, the solution for man's inability. Joshua knew the solution for man's inability. And so scripture makes it clear to us that the solution for man's inability inability is god's grace grace that is a function of his holiness and goodness and even his jealousy that he has for those things we could look at joshua's statement in verse 19 and say to ourselves well if we can't do it what's the point of all this shouldn't we just go live our lives and be happy for a little while and then we'll just what's going to happen anyway But that really is missing the good news of this passage. You see, God has not called us to fight a losing battle. He's called us to rest in the victory that he has won for us. You know, when Joshua made this covenant with Israel... He put in place the statutes and the rules for them at Shechem. Statutes and rules that God had given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Statutes and rules that dictated to them how to live and how to walk in the land that God had given them. How to live as a holy people. When most people think about the law of Moses, they tend to think of an oppressive set of rules, which Paul shows us in Romans 2, we cannot keep. But when you read the law and when you read what is said about it in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Prophets, even by Jesus and by the apostles, we see that the law is celebrated. And while yes... We can't measure up to the standard of holiness that the law expresses and makes known to us. We learn in Romans 3 that God had a purpose and a plan to exalt his glory by working in spite of our weakness through Christ to fulfill that righteous requirement for us. Paul explains that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to god for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin that's the first problem that's what we saw in our first point that's joshua standing there and saying you can't do it now hear the solution but now The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's the solution. That's God's solution to our broken promises and our failing efforts and our crashing and burning resolutions. That's God's solution to the human problem of sin. His grace in Christ who kept the law fulfilled the law and rescues all who hope in him. Joshua set this great stone in place at Shechem at the same place where his forefather Jacob had purified his own house and buried all the foreign gods who were among them beneath the, the tree that was there. He knew full well that this covenant was fragile. But he committed himself to the people to do it anyway because he had a reason to hope in a gracious God, a God who had set them apart, called them out of slavery, delivered them from every enemy and obstacle, and given them this land. He had faith that, he, that God would see them through their sin as well. And that brings us to consider our third point this morning, which is how we receive this grace. We receive grace through faith. Now they say that all good things come to an end, and so it is with the book of Joshua. After telling us how Joshua sent the people home, our author wraps things up with a good report and three dead bodies. We see that Joshua lived to the ripe old age of 110, and we're told that Israel served the Lord as they said they would do all of his life, and as long as the elders who outlived him were alive. Joshua actually receives some high marks in this passage. Uh, He's called the servant of the Lord, which is the title typically referred to, that's used to refer to Moses. So this is, this is a big deal. We're told that when Joshua died, he was buried in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim. So things have come full circle for Joshua. Now we're also told that Eleazar, the son of Aaron, who was the high priest serving alongside Joshua, died, And we're told that he was buried at Gibeah, uh, sorry, Gibeah. Wow, I really messed that one up. And also, which is also in Ephraim, in the town of Phinehas, his son. So nothing is too terribly surprising about either one of those two burials, except maybe, I think, Joshua's age. The burial that seems to be most out of place and which really needs to grab our attention as we wrap this book up, however, is the burial of Joshua's ancestor, Joseph, and the burial of his bones, which were told the people of Israel brought out of Egypt, buried, and buried at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob had bought from Hamor, the father of Shechem, all the way back in Genesis 33. Now, this burial is interesting and it is relevant to the book of Joshua because it really brings God's promises, which he made uh, to them and to their fathers, full circle. Joseph, you may remember, lived most of his life in the land of Egypt. But we are told in in the book of Genesis that he never forgot God's promise to him and to his family. Now he also, just like Joshua, lived to the age of 110. And when he came to the end of his life, he called his brothers to him and he said to them, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then we're told that he made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. The reason Joseph's burial at Shechem is worth mentioning here at the end of the book of Joshua is because it demonstrates once again God's faithfulness to keep his word. And it proves to us that he is worthy of our trust. This is like the grand finale pointing us to the God who always delivers on his words. Besides that, this conclusion wraps up the book of Joshua, I think, by calling us all to, to share this faith and this gracious God who delivers us from the darkness of our sin and makes us into a holy people for his glory. Now Joseph told the sons of Israel that in time God would visit them and take them home, just as he uh, had said to their fathers. The author of Hebrews tells us that um, he actually points to Joseph and the directions he gave concerning his bones and says that he did this by faith. So it stands that while the book of Joshua is primarily a book that aims to show us how God is the keeper of all his promises, it also stands that the book of Joshua is intended to drive each and every one of us to trust this God, this God who has orchestrated the history of the world for the purpose of his glory and in the story of redemption, this God who has exalted Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Now I've said a lot about a lot this morning about human weakness, about how we fall short of God's righteous standard. We've said a lot this morning about Joshua's reality check, and that really is not because I want any of you to, to despair as if there's no hope. What the message of Joshua 24 aims to get at is that we will hope. And the only one who was able to work in spite of our weakness to make us holy as he himself is holy and to give us a righteousness that is not our own. You know, Joshua and the people made a covenant together, a covenant that ultimately failed. But in Jeremiah 31, 31, God told Israel how he was going to do something greater, how he was going to establish a new and better covenant, which he says, has delivered on that promise in and through Jesus Christ. And in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. But of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now we enter into that new covenant, according to the Holy Scriptures, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For we read in the book of Romans that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, in this last message from the book of Joshua, on the last Sunday of 2021, I want to end this morning by making a final appeal to you all. The same God, who delivered on all of his promises to Israel in the days of Joshua, has also delivered on his promise to deal with our sin. So put away all hope you may be harboring in any other thing, your church attendance, your knowledge of theology, your good works, your good intentions, and instead look to Christ, who has rescued us from our sin And from our weakness. And commit yourself today. To live by his grace. Through faith. In him. Let's pray. Our great God and King. You are the one who keeps his covenants. There is no God like you. There is no God in all the earth who makes promises with mortals and delivers on them. There is no other God. While there are so many things that cry out for our attention and for our affection and that try to wiggle their ways into the list of priorities and try to make their way to the top, you are God. Lord, this is an objective truth. It is true whether we believe it or not. And yet you have chosen to shine your light into dark hearts, into sinful hearts, and to bring life to them through the work of Jesus and through the work of your Spirit. Father, we thank you that you are so merciful towards sinners like us. And as we consider our weakness, as we have been confronted with our weakness this morning, Father, it's, it's not a comfortable thing to have your sin exposed and your weakness exposed. We like to think of ourselves as capable people. And when it comes to general things that we do throughout the day, we are. But the, all, this even is, we are, is reality because you have given it to us. So, Father, we want to bring ourselves to you this morning. And to empty ourselves. And to ask that you would fill us with the light and the life of Christ. Father, help us not to trust in any good intentions or good works that we might present as some sort of qualification that might get us into heaven. Help us instead only to trust in the work of Christ on our behalf. Help us to trust in you, the God who keeps his promises. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.